Well, thank you, Mike, for leading us into worship. Thank you, Gary, for praying for us and reading the scriptures for us. Our, our elder Bob made an important announcement concerning a future activity that's coming up in a few months, our annual spring retreat. We just want to emphasize how doubly important this spring retreat is in light of our past retreats. Our next year's theme for the whole year is uh, great passion for God's great commission, the call to evangelism and world missions. And we considered, um, we had hoped to have our first retreat be that theme and it worked out that way with our scheduling. And Pastor John Shim is going to come and teach on those topics, on evangelism, on missions, on preaching this gospel to this world, this lost and dying world. And so we invite each and every one of you to come and dine with us in this spiritual feast so that we can be all, we can all, our hearts can be together. We can all be on the same page. And we can contend as one man for the gospel um, in our small spheres of influences here in Southern California. We encourage you guys to come out, set, out, set aside those dates, and um, we're going to, we're possibly considering raising the retreat prices just by a very little bit, you know, just, just a little bit. And it is not because, um, you know, I need a better, I don't know, outfit or, I don't know, it's not for like to buy something in the church, it's so that we will lose less money uh, in running our retreats. Our church has subsidized many of you, and uh, actually all of you in our retreats, but we just felt that was not a good, st- we're not being good stewards of that. So we want to lose less money, and we really felt compelled in a lot of our finances that we'd be better stewards if we were to raise the prices just a little bit um, for, the, for the retreats to come. But we don't want finances to be a reason for anyone not to attend the retreat. We don't want you guys to come for number's sake. We don't want you guys to come so that we have even uh, game teams. That's not the reason. I mean, we don't want you guys to come um, so that we will grow together and, and fellowship together and pray together in the Lord. I mean, that's the only reason. And we would hate for something like money to be a reason that you, you can't attend the retreat. So if you have any financial burdens or difficulties, please talk to Bob, Elder Bob, myself, or Huey. And we would love to work with you and help you out in, in every way we can. Uh, it is still three months away for all you single folks out there. There's this thing called a bank. And you could like save money and earn interest. So three months' time should be plenty for you to set aside funds for the retreat. Well, let's get to our sermon this morning. John chapter 7. Uh, we read from 14 through 36. The actual passage that we'll be covering will be verses 25 through 36. And for the past few weeks, we've been, we've been studying John chapter 7. If you've been awake, you realize we've been on John chapter 7 for uh, several weeks. It is a chapter that faithfully retells the Lord Jesus teaching in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I want to begin by setting up the historical scene for us. Setting up the historical scene. Now, I don't have visual aid, I don't have slides, I don't have video of Jerusalem or the temple. So, we're going to have to use our imagination. Right? Our imagination. Remember that? Right before we had TV and internet. Things we used to visualize things. Well, I want to invite you to a journey 2,000 years ago to a city, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, and specifically the temple of God. 
Uh, time is around A.D. 33. Scholars debate exactly what date it is, year it is, 32, 33, 34. It's right around that time. What is certain is that it is autumn. It is the 14th day of the month of Tishri, the lunar calendar and the Jewish calendar. Uh, for our, in our calendar, it is late September, early October. Um, Jerusalem is several thousand feet above sea level, so definitely the temperature is brisk. The wind is blowing. I mean, everyone has their uh, overcoats on. It is somewhat colder. Uh, it is a special time of the year for the city because it is a time for the Feast of Tabernacles, an Old Testament command, an annual pilgrim feast that was mandatory for all Jews who live within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem, but faithful Jews throughout the known world, even as far as Spain, would make that long journey just to come and worship in the temple in this Feast of Tabernacles. And they would set up tents all over the place, because that was the command of God, on rooftops, on streets, on backyards. They would set up tents all over the place, and everybody would dwell in tents for eight days. To a memorial, a vivid memorial of God's redemption out of their bondage in Egypt and how they slept in tents while they were wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years. So at this time, Jerusalem, the city of palaces, the city of beauty and glory, is filled to overflow capacity with Jewish worshippers. I mean, it is hustle and bustle with Jews all over, from all over the world gathered to worship our God. And their hearts are filled with joy. Their hearts are filled with praise because this is what they've longed for. This was their hope, their aspiration, and their prayers. I mean, all faithful Jews, it was a prayer of theirs for the prosperity and protection of Jerusalem. Psalm 51, 18. In your good pleasure, O God, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Jews would pray for the city. It was a prayer of all faithful Jews to worship, to one day they want to worship in, in Jerusalem. Psalm 116, 18 and 19. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the temple of God. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So when the, the Jews that are there are excited, they're happy, they're overflowing with thanksgiving that they're in the city walls, they're going to the temple, they're actually walking up to the temple to, to celebrate this feast and worship our God and make sacrifices to the Lord. So almost overnight, the population of Jerusalem would rise several times over. Right? You know, I considered you know, Black Friday. You guys know what Black Friday is? A lot of the sisters know what it is. Brothers probably have no clue. Right? Black Friday. It is the first shopping day after Thanksgiving, right? And I, I considered going shopping this Friday, Black Friday. And Bob told me, James, you don't want to do that because the crowds are so unbelievable, you don't want to do that. So I trust Bob's counsel. I didn't go. And I'm glad I didn't go because I heard from the news, I read the papers. There are lines outside the malls waiting to get in. The parking lots were filled at 5 a.m. I mean, can you believe it? People, there was a crowd in the malls at 5 in the morning. Well, that's nothing compared to the crowd that was gathered and, and overflowing in the city of Jerusalem. Once the pilgrims entered the city, they made a beeline to one place. Obviously, the Temple of God, Herod's Temple. Let me give you a brief background of this Temple of God. Now recall, 
Who was the man that wanted to build this temple for God, an abode for God, where God would dwell, and the Shekinah glory would dwell forever? Remember, it was David. Right? That was his prayer. That was his desire. A man after God's own heart. He wanted to build God's temple. But God said no, because his hand was stained with blood. He had killed too many men. He gave that privilege and honor to Solomon. And Solomon built his temple in 960 B.C. A great edifice. Right? Edifice uh, 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 where God's glory, where the sacrifices were made, the holy place, the court of women, the court of Gentiles, the holiest of holies. He built this temple for God. But in 587 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came and looted and burned and destroyed this temple. A second temple was built on top of the ruins of the first temple under the authority of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Jewish captives that were in exile in Babylon came back to Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem were torn and the temple was destroyed and they were in mourning. And under God's sovereignty, they rebuilt this temple much smaller and inferior to Solomon's. That was the best they could do with the resources that they had, but they albeit built this temple. Now, several artifacts were now missing because Nebuchadnezzar looted the place. He took everything when he looted it and destroyed, destroyed it in 587 B.C. And chief among them was the Ark of the Covenant that was gone. They instead placed a stone where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And when the uh, chief priest would go in, he would sprinkle the blood, not on the Ark, because it's gone, on the stone. That would be a remembrance of the Ark. Now, from 587 B.C., obviously the time of Christ, um, the temple was sacked and looted several times. The chief among them was uh, a, a Roman, uh, Roman general. Antiochus Epiphanes came and he wanted to see this temple of God where God dwelt, this Yahweh. And he wanted to, to go into the secret place of the holiest of holies. He ripped the, the uh, veil apart, he entered and he was empty. And what did he do? He slaughtered a pig on the altar. Abomination that causes desolation. And he, he denigrated the temple of God by, by sacrificing an unclean animal to the sorrow of all the Jews that were present. And it was in a state of utter disrepair when in 19 BC, King Herod, in an attempt to appease his Jewish subjects, he constructed an enormous, ornate, cream-colored temple of stone and gold. Right. Herod did this for the Jewish people because he wanted to please them. He was a cruel and murderous leader, and we learned this in our Israel trip uh, last year, that he was an able architect who loved to build buildings. I don't know how those two go hand in hand. He had two hobbies. Right? Tyranny and building buildings, right? And he built this great temple that took over 70 years to build from, from 19 BC to 64 AD, right? And sad to say, it was destroyed when? 70 AD. Thanks, young. Six years later, right? He finished the temple and is destroyed within six years. Historians describe this temple as gloriously beautiful. A majestic edifice that towered over all others in the city. It was built of white marble, covered with heavy plates of gold in front, and rising high above its marble cloistered courts. Josephus compared this temple to a snow-covered mountain. 
that, that it was conspicuous and was dazzling from every side. He said that the gold and white stones of the temple showed so brightly in the morning sun that it was difficult to look directly at the temple. It was so dazzling, so sparkling. I mean, it was a huge building. The temple building occupied an area that measured about 490 yards from north to south and 325 yards from east to west. The entire temple complex was enclosed by a massive stone wall. At some points where it meets the Kidron Valley, it stood about 50 yards above the floor of the Kidron Valley. So as the pilgrims came, 33 AD, the temple was somewhat built. The marble is there. The gold plates are there. And they're just amazed at this building, at this temple. They're just enamored by it. They're the wonderment of the temple scene. Here was a real realization they're found the streams ever since childhood. And they're now at the place of God's presence and God's promise. As they're gathered here, there are three groups of people in John chapter 7 that John identifies. Three groups of people that John identifies for us. The first group that are gathered in this temple of God in the Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned in verse 1, 11, and 19. John simply calls the Jews. This term denotes the religious leaders of Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, meaning the, the lawyers and the chief priests. They were openly hostile to Christ. By this time, the conspiracy was set in place to kill Christ they were at the very least antagonistic towards the person of Christ. The second group is the crowd, verses 20 and verse 31. Verse 20 and verse 31. These are the throng of pilgrims who are not from Jerusalem or the near vicinity. These are more than likely the pilgrims who have journeyed from afar. And how do we, why do we say this? Because they have no idea about this conspiracy. They have no idea about this antagonism and this friction between Christ and the leaders of Israel. So when Christ says, why are you trying to kill me? They say, you're demon possessed. And they're honest. Who's trying to kill you? They have no idea. They're oblivious of this, this, uh, this drama that is unfolding behind the scenes between these two powers. The third group is the people of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem. And that's in our text this morning. These men, because they're citizens of this capital, they know. And word gets around fast. They know about this plot by the leaders to kill Jesus. And that is why they're asking, are they convinced he is the Christ? Because we know this conspiracy is here, but he's speaking so boldly, have they not reconsidered their position? And have come to the conclusion that he is actually the Messiah? Well, John identifies these three groups of people, and yet they had one unified question. All the people, wherever they are from, no matter what social, religious class, they were all talking about one man. One man was the topic of conversation, and who was that? That was the Lord Jesus. Unremitting questions centered around, questions centered around the true identity of this man. This question was again and again raised by these groups of people. The question, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? What is his identity? It is such an important question. 
If this morning you don't know the answer to that question, you need to know that answer before you leave this room. It is a watershed question. Eternal consequences hang in the balance of the right answer. Many people in the Scriptures were gripped by this question. Matthew 21.10 During Passover, His last Passover, when Christ entered the temple, the, the, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The disciples asked this in Mark 4.41 When He quieted the storm in, in the Sea of Galilee. When the, the, the tempest, the storm was still, the waters were still, the wind was stilled, the disciples asked, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, sad to say, most of the people in the Gospels had a wrong view of Jesus. Their view of Jesus was distorted and inconsistent with his true identity. Some thought he was demon-possessed. Some thought he was a Samaritan. Some thought he was a drunkard and a glutton. Matthew eleven nineteen. They called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners, insinuating that he was sinful. Some believed that he was a blasphemer. Some believed even that he was a prophet of God. But that wasn't right. Even that wasn't right. That wasn't noble enough. That wasn't high enough view of Christ that he was a mere prophet. Despite the countless proclamations by the Lord concerning his own identity, his his numerous, countless teachings, his pleadings with the masses of his true identity, a great majority were hopelessly confused about his true identity. And again, we want to ask that question again. You, know, you might say, hey James, didn't you ask this question two weeks ago? Well, I did, but a little different angle this morning. Right. The question is, why didn't these Jews, these faithful Jews who who journeyed days to gather at the temple to worship God. And even the Pharisees, the leaders, the, the, the scribes, they're living what's studying the Bible. How could it be that they didn't discern that He was the Christ? How could they be so blind and not recognize their own Messiah, the Anointed One, promised in the Old Testament Scriptures? Now, I asked this question two weeks ago, and we looked at the moral reasons the moral reasons why they didn't recognize Christ. Right? You guys remember? A quick quiz. Should I have you guys stand up and answer? Right? Donna wants to answer. Right? There are moral reasons why. Right? One was envy and jealousy. Right? They were envious of our Lord's popularity. That the people were crowding around Him. They were, they were adoring Him and following Him. They were just jealous. Second reason was they loved the power and prestige of being rabbis, of being Pharisees, of being the title of rabbi, having the best seats in the restaurant, right? having been called to the front and having the position of authority. And they didn't want to share that power or give that power to anyone. It was a moral reason they, they hated Christ. They didn't recognize and acknowledge Christ or Jesus as the Christ. Third reason, John 7, 7. Because our Lord exposed their deeds as evil their whole religious system as morally bankrupt, as utter wickedness. Now those are the moral reasons why they didn't identify Christ. Today, we want to start by stating, we want to state the theological reasons why these Jews, the leaders, the pilgrims, the Jerusalemites, citizens of Jerusalem, why they didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ. 
the theological reasons. I think this will help us to somewhat understand the psyche of the Jewish mind, the leaders in the crowd that is gathered at this temple. We would, I think by understanding this, we would understand the dynamic, the entrenched disagreement, the entrenched conflict that exists between uh, the Jewish crowd that's gathered around, around him and Christ himself. It was not a minor disagreement. It was not a misunderstanding. But their views were diametrically opposed because of these reasons. The first theological reason is that they didn't believe in the Word of God. It's simple. They didn't believe in the Word of God. It's an amazing truth. That these people, you know, like when a Jew, um, they would never throw away the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures. They would bury it. If they would drop the, the scroll on the floor by accident, they would lift it up and kiss it three times. If a piece was torn, they would they would dig it on the ground and bury it reverently. I mean, these were men and women who loved externally the Word of God. They memorized it. They meditated on it day and night. And yet Christ says, they didn't believe in the Word of God. They didn't abide in the Scriptures. That is the reason for their rejection of Christ. John five thirty-seven through 38 You have never heard His voice. You don't know His Word. Verse 38, Nor does His Word dwell in you. John 5, 46-47, If you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote about Me. But since you do not believe what He wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? What an indictment. The reason they reject Christ, didn't identify Him, because they don't believe in the Word of God. It's all mere formality. They're self-deceived. And it just, it's kind of scary. It's, it, it shudders a person, any sober person reading the Scriptures, that people can be so self-deceived. But these men are clear examples of that. That they, they were surrounded by the Word of God. They didn't add faith, as it says in Hebrews 4. They didn't combine it with faith. They were foreigners to the Word of God. Therefore, they were foreigners to its author, which is Christ. Second reason, second theological reason is the Jewish leaders had a distorted view of sin and the law. The Jewish leaders, the crowds, the Jerusalemites had a faulty view of sin and the law. Now, I put these two together because they're like bacon and eggs. Right? They're like sushi and wasabi. Right? They're like hot wings and rice. <laughs> that won't work. Right? They go together. Right? Wrong view on one means you have a wrong view on the other. A symbiotic relationship. If you have a wrong view of the law, you have a wrong view of sin. If you have a wrong view of sin, you have a wrong view of the law. They go together. If you have a right view of the law, you will have a right view of sin. If you have a right view of sin, ultimately, you will have a right view of the law. And so... They had a wrong view, faulty view, erroneous view, a man-centered view of sin and the law. Now first, let's tackle sin. They didn't have a biblical understanding of sin. There were two distortions. First of all, they saw sin as, they saw themselves as pure, as without sin. Wrong starting point, right? Wrong presupposition. One of the main pillars of Pharisaic doctrine is purity. By separation. 
If you want to understand the Pharisees, understand one thing. It's separation. Right? Perishim literally means to separate, to segregate. They were set apart. So they would not intermingle. They would not interact with the Amharets, the people of the land. Anyone who was not a Pharisee was an Amharet, meaning you were a, 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 a barbarian. You were ritually unclean. You were unpleasing to God. So they, they separated themselves from any kind of interaction with the Amharet. They would not sell or buy land or any kind of uh, tr- in transaction with, with a non-Pharisee. Now, there were ways to go around this, of course, right? But, but they, they considered themselves ritually unclean by interacting with them. They would not dine or associate with them. Rabbi Hillel said, no Amharet is pious. They saw themselves as pure. And so everyone else is tainted. This means right, they had a wrong view of sin. That sin was outside getting in. That's why they were so concerned about washing hands before meals. Remember that? It wasn't about like hygiene. It was ritual purity. They were always washing. Right? They are always cleansing. Because they felt sin was outside trying to contaminate them. And they saw themselves as pure. First is spiritual pride, wrong view of sin. Second is that they saw sin as external, not in the heart. Defilement for them was associated with the hands and not with the heart. Outside getting in. Instead of what Christ said, it's not what goes in your mouth, it was what comes out that makes you filthy. It's your heart. Mark 5, right? Secondly, not only did they have a wrong view of sin, they had a wrong view of the law. Wrong view of the law. They viewed obedience to the law as the way to righteousness. They viewed the way to righteousness was through obedience. Now, follow with me, guys. Judaism, in the time of Christ, and definitely not today, is not a monolithic religion. Unity in Judaism has never existed. Right? Ever since they sold Joseph... Right? The youngest son. Unity does not exist. Now, in, in time, time of Christ, there are two major religious parties. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they were competitors. Sadducees made up mostly of priests. Their authority, their realm of influence was the temple. The Pharisees, their realm of influence was the synagogue. Not found in scripture. Their main work was the Torah, the, the Talmud, oral tradition. It wasn't written down then, but the oral tradition, the teaching of the rabbis, and the letter of the law, and the word of God. That was their, their, their tool, their work, their emphasis. The Sadducees, because they were priests, and they were working in the temple, what is their emphasis? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. So if you were a priest, you saw the reality of sin. Because with your own hands, you're murdering animals because of somebody else's sins. Your clothes were covered with blood. I mean, you had blood all over the... I mean, you smelled like animal blood. You would have animal blood underneath your nails. You'd be in your hair. You'd be in your, 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 your feet, your toenails. I mean, you'd be drenched in it. And every day they would hear the prayers of people confessing their sins and they would slaughter animal on animal animal after animal and for them it was a vivid reality that righteousness came by substitutionary atonement 
not by works of the law, that we were righteous by God's provision of an animal and by the death of an animal pointed to Christ and the death of an animal, that shedding of blood secured the forgiveness of sin for all these Jews. They were confronted by that daily. Now the, the Pharisees, they were in a whole different world because they were competing with the Sadducees. They discounted that. They said, no, no, that's not where it's at. The Sadducees got it all wrong. They're liberals. They don't even believe in the resurrection. The, the way to righteousness is obedience to the law. And that's what they hammered in the synagogue. And when A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed, the power of the Sadducees was lifted up from under them. Right? No more temple, no more sacrifices. Synagogues began to uh, pop up all over the world. Everywhere, everywhere the Jews went, a synagogue popped up. And the Pharisees gained greater power, greater authority. And the Judaism we know today, the rabbinic Judaism, are the offspring of the Pharisees. It's still today. Judaism today is still the rabbinical tradition of righteousness through the law of God. And suffice to say, they had a wrong view of the law. The law was given after redemption in Leviticus, right? What happened in Exodus? God redeemed the people. God gave the laws in Leviticus so that they would walk with God for sanctification. If Leviticus was given in Egypt, then it would make sense. You're saved to the law. But just the timing of the law tells us you were already redeemed. You were saved. You were brought out from Israel. Now here are the laws for you to follow, to walk and follow in my ways. To walk and be, be my people and I will be your God. Instead, they turned it around and they saw the law as a way towards righteousness. Why? Because they had a wrong view of sin which caused a wrong view of the law. Now, why do I say this? What's the point of this? The bottom line here is there is no sin. There is no sacrifice. There is no need for a suffering Messiah. There is no need. If there is no sin, if there is no need for a sacrifice, if obedience is gained to the law, we don't need a suffering Messiah. As Christ presented Himself. Let me quote to you uh, three Bible teachers. B.F. Westcott says, That which at the outset seems to be difficult to understand now becomes easily understood when we observe two related facts in regard to the Jewish expectation. They had no cognition of sin and in consequence felt no need of a suffering Messiah to atone for it. Alfred Edersheim expresses it well when he says, quote, In the absence of a felt need of deliverance from sin, we can understand how rabbinic tradition found no place with a suffering Messiah who would die a substitutionary death. End quote. David Barron, who writing on Isaiah 53 says, quote, The idea of a suffering Messiah became more and more repulsive to rabbinic Judaism as they lost the knowledge of sin and the consciousness of the need of salvation, end quote. In preparing for today's sermon, one tape I listened to was Dr. Varner's tape on Isaiah 53 from our Bible conference last year. And he told us how in all the synagogues throughout the world, every Sabbath, they all read the same portion of the Old Testament. 
And they go through the whole Testament in one year. Except they don't read one passage. In the, in the Jewish synagogue, they never read Isaiah 52.11 to, to the end of Isaiah 53. Why? Not only does it cause controversy with the Jews, but it, because it points to Jesus Christ. And in the rabbinic tradition, the suffering Messiah is repulsive to them. It is repulsive to them. Because knowledge of sin, the, the acknowledgement of the need of salvation are prerequisites to make the doctrine of a vicariously suffering Redeemer acceptable. Right. So this helps us understand why the disciples re- reacted the way they did. Every time our Lord mentioned His sufferings, the disciples, because they were steeped in this tradition as well, did not understand His words. The concept of a suffering Messiah was utterly foreign to them. Remember Matthew 16, 21-22, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and the third day be raised to life. What was Peter's response? You're going to suffer? You're the Messiah? You're the Holy One of God? You're going to die? Peter's response was, he took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus Christ. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Matthew 17, 22-23, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. On the third day he will be raised to life. The disciples were filled with grief. In Luke 24, 26, after the resurrection, they're walking to the road to Emmaus. And the disciples are walking together. And, and the Lord, cloaked as a stranger, explains to them, did not Christ have to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Explain that the Messiah had to suffer. To them, it was a foreign concept. Two reasons, first two reasons why these Jewish men and women failed to identify Christ. First is they didn't believe in the Word of God. Second, they had a wrong view of law, wrong view of sin. The third theological reason is, this is amazing, it was predicted. It was predicted. God designed it this way. Matthew thirteen fourteen, And in this is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. They will hear, but they will not understand. They will see, but they will not perceive. Acts 13, 27-28. I encourage you guys, maybe later on this week, look up uh, Acts 13. It says, The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning Him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Luke says, this is all according to God's plan. It was preordained by God. Well, so we can, we can see here that their dis- disagreement wasn't minor. The conflict wasn't over a trivial issue. They were, they, were, they were entrenched in, in, in conflict. They're entrenched in their disagreement. 
and the Jewish people had no excuse for their failure to identify Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Well, that was my introduction. With that historical, theological scene set, let's go to the text. We understand what's going on. There's drama here. I mean, there's intense electricity in the temple as the Lord's teaching. And as the Lord enters halfway to the feast, and a great mob gathers around Him, and He begins to teach, the people are just blown away. The people are shocked. Because they had never met anyone like Christ before in their lives. Especially a religious leader like Jesus. Our Lord's meekness, humility, gentleness, and love marked Him out in great contrast to the proud and selfish and arrogant scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and priests. They wondered of His identity. He did not act or talk like anyone else that they had ever seen. He did not identify Himself with any of the scribal groups or with any of the sects or movements of His time. Instead, our Lord openly and lovingly identified Himself with the outcast, with the sick, with the sinful, and the needy of every sort. And He freely proclaimed grace and dispensed mercy. Here we see in John 7, the crowds gathered around this man, they're amazed. They're blown away. They don't know what to make of him. John 7 raises, highlights three questions. There are many more. But John considers these three questions worthy of consideration. First question was the source of his teaching. We covered that two weeks ago. Where did he get this teaching from? He's not from one of the rabbinical schools. In verses 15 through 18, our Lord says, Teaching is not from Him, it's from the Father. Anyone who wants to verify this, anyone who desires to obey God's Word, this will be verified, this will be confirmed to Him. He confirms His own character and conduct that He he seeks to honor God, not Himself, supporting His teaching. The source is God, not Himself. Secondly, the Pharisees were angry with him because in their view he was breaking the law of Moses by healing on the Sabbath. So they questioned him about his view of the law. His answer is awesome, right? Verses 19-24. to He doesn't play defense. He plays offense. He says, none of you obey the law. God gave you the law of Moses. None of you keep the law. You are all lawbreakers. Why are you trying to kill me? He exposes their utter lack of moral authority to question matters of the law. It's like a murderer talking about shoplifting. Hey, where do you get off talking about justice and law if you're a murderer? Well, that's what Christ is doing to these uh, Jewish people, these leaders of Israel. They boasted in having the law, but not a single one, not one of them obeyed the law. Paul makes the same point in Romans 2. Turn with me to Romans 2. It shows that even after they murdered Christ, they were still the same. Their boast was not in their submission to God's law, but it was all about the wrong things. Romans 2, 17-25. 
Paul writes, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? He is echoing Christ in John chapter 7. Do you break the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the Jewish people. Circumcision has value only if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. While these Jewish leaders are blind, they're oblivious, they're so steeped in their false system, their self-deception is so thorough, they don't see it. They deny it with a thick face. Right? Plead innocence. Plead ignorance. Break the law? We've never done such a thing. And their hearts are hardened towards killing Christ. Well, our Lord played offense. And, and we've and unearthed their inconsistency. You accuse me for healing on the Sabbath. You circumcise on the Sabbath. You, you sever a person's one part of the body. I make a person's whole body whole. And you accuse me of being a lawbreaker. Don't you see the inconsistencies? Inconsistency in that. The third question was about his true identity. About his true identity. John 7.25 Please turn back with me to John 7.25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? Now to me, what is impressive here is the boldness and courage of Jesus. John has already described the rising tide of hostility and opposition against Christ. The threats of murder, rumors that the authorities were seeking to kill him. Yet in the midst of all this, our Lord openly preaches in the temple courts and challenges the authorities to do anything about it. The Jerusalemites knew of this conspiracy to kill Jesus. And they wondered, have the leaders changed their conclusion? Because here he is speaking publicly, speaking parasia, speaking boldly. So impressive is his boldness and courage that many people now wonder that maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he is the anointed one. He is the promised one. The door came slightly ajar. Light was coming in. But just as quickly, they shut the door. Verse 27. But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Others reminded them of this folklore, this legend, not based on the scriptures, that the Messiah would suddenly appear, that no one would know where he came from. 
This is so ludicrous. There's not a single verse in the Old Testament that even alludes to this. Malachi 3, 1, you would have to twist that severely to fit what they're saying. I mean, there's no basis in Scripture. Yet, old wives, they bring out an old wives tale. Say, hey, we know, the son of Mary and Joseph. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth, he can't be the Messiah. Based upon something trivial as that, the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ vanishes. Verse 28, our Lord ignores these mistaken concepts, this superficial argument. And in verse 28, Jesus, still teaching the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. Notice the word cried out, krasain, krasain. It, it means properly to croak as a raven. Or it means to scream. It means to call aloud, to shriek, exclaim, to entreat. As he is teaching, he hears this murmuring and he raises his voice with great pathos, with great emotion. He shouts, Yeah, you know me and you know where I'm from. But I am not here on my own. He who sent me is true. You do not know Him. Now, if you have an NIV, NASV, King James Version, it is stated, it's, the first sentence is given as a statement. But RSV renders it as a question. Well, in the Greek, there is a question mark at the end of the first sentence. So, the translation of NIV, NASV, and King James is questionable. RSV is correct, I believe. Our Lord is asking a rhetorical, sarcastic, even ironic question. So you know me. Oh, yes, you know where I'm from, do you? He is emphasizing how wrong they were. Exposing their ignorance. Our Lord ridicules the very idea that they knew His origin. They didn't knew Him. There is irony here. He's ridiculing him with a question, an exclamatory question. He cries out and he tells of his true origin from the Father, the true source of his mission, mission from God, not from himself. And then, this is really awesome. I, I said that word several times, but this is really awesome. Our Lord takes off his jacket. <laughs> saying, Where is that in the Bible? Well, guys, you know what I mean, right? You guys ever take off your jacket? When's the last time you've taken off your jacket? I thought about this. Last time, maybe in high school. Right? A guy, I don't know. I don't remember what it was. But after school, I took off my jacket. Right? We threw down. We brawled. We duked it out. We were in the grass rolling around. Right? Well, that's what Christ is doing. He's throwing down his jacket by his next statement. He says, Saul, you know me. You know where I'm from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. Then he says, you do not know him. Period. NIV has comma. NASB is right. In the Greek, there is a period at the end. It's a complete statement. You do not know him, period. And by that, he's throwing down his jacket. I mean, if you can, guys, understand. If you ever go to Jerusalem, and if you ever have an opportunity to go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, you will see hundreds, late thousands of Orthodox Jews praying and wailing, reading scripture and praying in the Western Wall. 
if you want to do this, you know, God's grace, God's speed, but you don't want to go to them and say, you do not know God. You don't want to do that. Right? You don't want to go to Mecca, right, where the Muslims are worshipping in that stone building, whatever. Right? And you don't want to stand up and say, you guys don't know God. Right? You don't want to go to the Pope right? or the priest and say, you don't know God. Those are fighting words. Right? Those are fighting words. Those are words of war. Our Lord says, you do not know God. You don't know Him. You are ignorant. You don't have a relationship with Him. Now you've got to ask, why would Jesus do this? As students of the Bible, the best way to study the Bible is ask questions. Why would Jesus do this? Right? That is offensive. Is He taunting these leaders? Right? Is he wanting controversy? Is he, is he delighting to just cause trouble? Is he a revolutionary, a troublemaker? No. Our Lord is a truth teller in a world of self-delusion where men would rather follow lies and fantasies than the truth. Our Lord is a truth teller and He understands that when men are steeped in error, you need to shock them to get them to be awake. They need to be offended. They need to be told the truth at the cost of even your own life, because only such a shocking statement, such offense, might possibly jolt them to the spiritual reality that it's all a sham. That yes, they don't know God. That Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Christ. He tells it the way it is. And He lets the chips fall where it may. Verse 29, But I know Him because I am from Him, and He sent me a clear contrast. The first word in verse 29 in that sentence is I in the Greek. That I is emphatic, contrasting I with the you of the previous statement. You do not know Him, but I know Him. Because He is from the Father, and God sent Him. Well, the reaction to, to our Lord's words is predictable. Verse 30, at this they were enraged, they tried to seize Him. Referring to the citizens of Jerusalem, not the leaders of Jerusalem. They want to take the law into their own hands. They want the last shot and want and, and demand mob just justice. But our Lord does not back down. He understands that His time has not come. No one laid a hand on Him because His time had not come. Our Lord clearly perceived that no one could touch Him or stop Him until the Father allowed it to happen. He is aware of the unseen protecting hand of God. And this to me is so encouraging. That as we do the will of God, as we proclaim the gospel, that we will not, our lives won't be lost until it's the right time for us as well. We can be sure of God's safe protection like Christ, and like even the Apostle Paul in Acts 18. When he first preached in Corinth, he was afraid because of the opposition by the angry mob. Our Lord personally appeared to him in Acts 19 and told him, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Like Christ, like the Apostle Paul, I believe, same is true for us. 
whether Daniel in the den of lions, whether Paul before the authorities of Rome, whether Christians in the 21st century proclaiming the gospel, we have our time when God's going to call us, when we'll meet our Maker, and it's in His hands. It's not in the hands of our enemy. The power doesn't belong to this world. The authority to take our lives, bring us home, is in the hand of our God who is sovereign. Well, to give verse 31. Still many in the crowd put their faith in Him. They said, when the Christ comes, will He do more miraculous signs than this man? And this is great, isn't it? This is awesome. Because verses 30 and 31 is an accurate description of what always happens when you preach the gospel. What always happens. When you preach the true gospel, there will always be some who will be upset and angry. At the same time, there will be a few who will not be upset, who will not be angry, like some in the crowd. They put their faith in Him. Some who will hear the same exact gospel, instead of being offended, their hearts will be warmed. The same heat that melts butter hardens clay. Their hearts will melt like butter before the Word of God and follow Christ. Well, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the Sadducees and Pharisees, join their efforts to kill Christ. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, that was their conclusion. Let's join forces. And they sent temple guards to arrest him. Our Lord does not stop preaching. He says in verse 33, A little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. Even with the temple guards coming to arrest Christ, he is unfazed. He's continually teaching the Word of God. And he says, For a little while I'll be with you, then I will go and be, be here no longer. What does this mean? He knows that his time on earth is short. Feast of Tabernacles is held in October. Passover is April, only six months away. Our Lord knows that Passover is the ordained time when He will die on the cross. He says, My life is not in the hands of these temple guards, but in the, in the appointed time of the Father. Well, just the closing thoughts. Um, you know, this, this chapter was written to Jewish Christians, right? John twenty thirty one. the purpose of the gospel is clearly given. These things are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not His last name. And Christ is the title. Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. So it's an apologetic for Jewish Christians and also for, for Jews who are not Christians. John said was written so that maybe perhaps some Jews in the time of when John was writing this that their hearts might be open and they might see that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, how do we apply it in the 21st century? I don't think there are any Jews in this room. I could be wrong, right? But there aren't any. How does it apply to us? I think the theological reason for them to, to reject the identity of Christ is universal. Do not abide in the Word of God. Wrong view of sin. If you think a sin is external then your focus is on moralism, it's on religion, it's on obedience. If you see sin as internal, then you're, you're, you plead for the Holy Spirit to come and transform your heart. Mercy and grace. 
If you have a wrong view of the law, your Christianity is based upon works. Right to the law, Christianity is based on faith alone. If you follow Christ and have these wrong theological notions, you need to re-examine your foundations and to check again whether you're viewing Christ in the right way. And the final one for the believers, that was an encouragement to me, the boldness of Christ. I don't know. I don't think I could do this. I, I'm pretty sure I, I couldn't. Right? Can I go to Mecca and say, you don't know God? That's what Christ is doing. He's going behind enemy lines and standing fast to the truth of God's word. Well, our, our, our battles are so small compared to the battle that Christ fought here. Right? I mean, has anyone shed even a drop of blood because of the gospel? No. In this world, I doubt that will ever happen in our lifetime. How much more ought we be bold and courageous in standing for the gospel, knowing that every time the gospel is preached, there will be two responses. All for the glory of God. They will reject it for the glory of God, because it is predicted in the scriptures. Or, a few will embrace it and become co-heirs with us in Christ. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, we are just humble at your example, humble that your courage and your meekness and your grace and just your humility in the face of such steep opposition. Lord, just uh, the emotion and the frustration of you crying out. These, these masses of people lost in sin and yet they will not come and drink from the living water. Lord, may we have same passions for the lost in our world. May we cry out in our own way and, and stand against and battle against the errors of our time. And that we would herald the gospel with grace and boldness so that the elect might be saved. In Jesus' name, Amen.